This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good morning. My name is Richard Kai, and I'm the president and CEO of the Institute of the Americas located on the UC San Diego campus in La Jolla, California. Established in 1981, the Institute of the Americas is an independent, inter-American focused institution devoted to encouraging the economic and social reform across the Western Hemisphere, enhancing private sector collaboration and communication to strengthen political and economic relations between Latin America, the Caribbean, the United States, and Canada. Given the institution's organizational mission, I'm pleased to welcome you today to our virtual forum entitled Build Back Better Together, Canada and the United States, being organized in honor of Canada Day, which will be in a few days on July 1st. Before we begin, I wanna thank our, our supporter, the Burnham Foundation, and our program partners, the UCLA Canadian Studies Program, the Maple, the Maple Business Council of Southern California, the California Chamber of Commerce, and NASCO. I also wanna thank our media partner, the University of California Television, that will be recording and rebroadcasting today's program on their channel. Today, we have an impressive lineup of speakers and panelists from both Canada and the United States. I'd also like to say thank you to Richard Kai at the Institute of the Americas for inviting me to speak with you today. My thanks as well to the Maple Business Council, the UCLA Canadian Studies Program, the California Chamber of Commerce, and UCTV for their part in organizing this important discussion. And I don't want to start by appearing ungrateful, but it does seem a little unfair that in the year I'm part of an event in Southern California, we're all attending virtually, obviously for very good reasons. Um, and on that point, just how great is it that there's some light appearing at the end of the COVID tunnel? Despite joining you from across the country here in humid Washington, DC, I am well aware of the critical role trade plays in Canada's relationship with the US and Southern California. I want to start by saying a few words about that. I'm not sure how many of you know this, but Canada is one of the top foreign investors and trading partners for Southern California. The impact of partnerships with Canadian firms to the local economy is substantial, contributing to over 533,000 jobs in the region. In San Diego County specifically, the Canadian footprint is significant. How significant? Well, here are some stats. Almost 50,000 jobs in San Diego County depend on trade and investment with Canada. Close to 5,000 people are employed at 168 Canadian-owned businesses across San Diego County, familiar businesses like Stantec, City National Bank, Aldo, Colliers International, and Bombardier Transportation Holdings, to name a few. And then there are perhaps less familiar companies that are making a real difference in your community, like FredSense, a Calgary-based women and LGBTQ-led biotechnology firm developing tools for real-time water analysis. Also, there's Phoenix Molecular Designs, another women-led Canadian biotech company, which hit a major milestone in 2019 when it received FDA clearance to move its breast cancer fighting drug into a phase one, 1B clinical trial. And of course, there are all of the companies that export goods and services to Canada. 1.7 billion in goods and 914 million in services are exported by San Diego County to Canada 
annually. Now, those are a lot of numbers to keep straight, and don't worry, I will not uh, quiz you following my remarks. But I do think it's important to highlight the strong foundation upon which the trade relationship is built and what we have put in place on which we can build moving forward. Of course, a fundamental part of the Canada-US Trade Foundation is our newly modernized USMCA, or the new NAFTA, which came into force almost exactly a year ago on July 1st, 2020. But before we talk about the future and all of its opportunities and possibilities, I'd like to take a moment to reflect on the last 16 months or so and the impacts on our bilateral trade relationship. By now, it is an understatement to say that we've experienced a period of significant instability, uncertainty, loss, and change in the United States, in Canada, and across the globe. On a parochial note, it's hard for me to believe it was back in March 2020 that my boss, Kirsten Hillman, was appointed as Canada's ambassador to the United States, the first woman to hold this role. Not long after, in the same month, as the impact of the pandemic was becoming more fully understood, Canada and the United States moved to restrict all non-essential travel along the Canada-US border. It really was an extraordinary time. As a reminder, this is a border that, under normal circumstances, sees over 400,000 crossings a day. It's a border that supports about 2 billion USD in goods and services trade between our two countries every day, 2 billion. Roughly three quarters of Canada's exports go to the United States. The goal of this joint Canada-US decision was to suspend all non-essential border crossings for public health and safety reasons while minimizing the impacts on our economies. Therefore, we continued to allow the movement of essential workers and the transport of goods for manufacturers and, of course, food and medical supplies. The data shows that the restrictions achieved the goals they set out to achieve. Following the sharp declines in trade flows at the onset of the pandemic, our efforts in co-managing the border meant that by December 2020, bilateral trade flows were back to 95% of pre-pandemic levels. As our two countries continue to focus our efforts on fighting the pandemic and turning our minds to an eventual easing of border measures, things are looking even better on the trade front. Through the first quarter of 2021, both US exports and US imports of goods and services from Canada exceeded the levels in the same period of 2020. In fact, U.S. exports of goods to Canada hit $28 billion in March alone, the highest level seen since October 2014. Because we have an almost perfectly reciprocal trading relationship, we're happy to report that the exact same thing can be said about U.S. imports from Canada. It's worth noting that throughout these last 15 months, we have had very good cooperation with both the previous and current administrations in making thoughtful and collaborative decisions about our shared border. More recently, 
the Prime Minister and the President agreed to take a coordinated approach based on science and public health criteria when considering measures to ease Canada-US border restrictions, a commitment that was reiterated recently when they spoke at the G7. Consistent with that approach, Ambassador Hillman and I and others at our embassy and in Ottawa and elsewhere are in regular contact with our US colleagues about the border. There are active and ongoing high-level discussions on these issues, and we are identifying together the conditions under which restrictions may be eased safely and sustainably. Cooperation, and in particular COVID cooperation, has also served as an important component of our early work with the Biden administration. Beginning on Inauguration Day, the embassy began receiving calls from senior members within the new administration, seeking to establish contact both with Ambassador Hillman and with Canadian ministers and senior government officials. It marked a strong and substantive start to the relationship. By leveraging our, our positive relationship with President Biden, which started during his tenure as vice president, we are reinvigorating the Canada-US relationship. This was certainly the focus back in February when President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau met for the first time, virtually of course, the president's first bilateral meeting with a foreign counterpart since taking office. As a result of that meeting, the leaders announced an ambitious roadmap for a renewed US-Canada partnership, which outlines a number of concrete actions for Canada-US collaboration in the coming years. And I say ambitious because we think of it as quite a remarkable document and a huge achievement. Oftentimes, leaders' statements can be high level, a bit brief, maybe a little vague, but this is a substantive, meaty, several pages long document, a big bilateral to-do list, if you will, encompassing a number of priorities with clear objectives. I think one of the reasons we were able to articulate such a substantive roadmap is that there is enormous alignment between the Biden administration and the government of Canada from a policy perspective. For both our countries, not surprisingly, the top priority is ending the COVID-19 pandemic and focusing on economic recovery, knowing that the two priorities are inextricably linked. The reality is that economic recovery in Canada and in the United States will be faster, stronger, and more enduring if we move forward together. This is, in, this is reflected in the roadmap's commitment to strengthen Canada-US supply chain security and reinforce our already interconnected industries, while also looking ahead to new areas for manufacturing that simultaneously support our climate and our energy objectives. With respect to our energy objectives and in recognition of how integrated our energy needs and infrastructure are, we will also continue to collaborate on critical minerals, battery development and production, and energy governance. On critical minerals, our joint action plan is an opportunity to promote responsible mineral resource development and related value-added economic activity while addressing key supply chain vulnerabilities. On climate change, an issue that Californians experience in a very real way every day, 
Canada and the U.S. are seizing opportunities created by the roadmap to accelerate our climate ambitions and work together internationally. In April of this year, the United States hosted an ambitious high-level climate summit at which both Canada and the United States announced new emissions reduction targets. As part of our commitment under the Paris Agreement, Canada will reduce our emissions by 40 to 45% below 2005 levels by 2030. Canada and the United States are now working together in the lead up to COP26 in November to encourage other countries to take similarly ambitious steps. At the recent G7 meeting in Cornwall, the Prime Minister also announced a doubling of Canada's climate finance from 2.65 billion in 2015 to 5.3 billion over five years, including increased support for adaptation, as well as for nature and nature-based solutions. We are also working together bilaterally to make these global commitments a reality. In March, Canada and the United States launched a high-level ministerial dialogue on climate ambition to better align policies and regulations between our two countries and address greenhouse gas emissions and their impacts, all while stimulating economic growth, creating jobs, and improving public health. Through this dialogue, we are also strengthening our cooperation on policies and investments to manage land carbon sinks, like forests, more effectively and improve their resilience to climate impacts, including wildfires and floods. The dialogue builds upon our cooperation in other areas. In 2019, Environment and Climate Change Canada signed a Memorandum of Understanding with California Air Resources Board to strengthen cooperation on greenhouse gas emissions reductions. Since 1966, when it established the first tailpipe emission standards in the United States, California has led the way in regulating vehicle emissions. As we continue to improve fuel economy and transition to zero emission vehicles, Canada will work to align federal light duty vehicle regulations with the most stringent performance standards in North America post-2025, whether at the US federal or state level. In other environmental news, Canada and the United States have committed to conserving 30% of lands and water by 2030, and have made policy and financial commitments in that regard. For Canada, this includes continued investments of $3.2 billion to the nature legacy, which includes efforts to collaborate with Indigenous and sub-federal partners. And just this past week, Energy Secretary Granholm and Canada's Minister of Natural Resources, Seamus O'Regan, renewed a mem memorandum of understanding on energy cooperation between our two countries, which reaffirms our partnership as we advance our shared priority of a people-centered clean energy transition that leaves no one behind. Of interest to this audience, I'd note that energy trade between Canada and California is worth over $1 billion annually and includes renewable energy exports from British Columbia that contribute to California's emissions reductions objectives. Our bilateral and global commitments in the roadmap 
also include cooperation in the areas of security and defense, including continental defense, cybersecurity, cross-border crime, and the Arctic. From a security and economic standpoint, Canada and the United States are also looking at ways to align our approaches on China, including how we deal with China's coercive and unfair economic practices, national security challenges, and human rights abuses. President Biden has said he wants to work closely with traditional allies, and he wants the US to re-engage in multilateral organizations, including the World Trade Organization, the UN, the G7 and G20, and NATO. A very recent example of this commitment to engaging with allies was at the G7 summit, where Canada and the United States joined their G7 counterparts to commit to a shared agenda for global action to build back better. As part of that agenda, the Prime Minister confirmed Canada's commitment of 100 million doses as part of the overall G7 commitment to international dose sharing of COVID-19 vaccines. And as I said at the outset, fighting COVID and focusing on economic recovery efforts are inextricably linked. As I think you can see from all of these commitments, there is a real sense of alignment and opportunity between our two countries. This alignment can also be seen in our shared determination to combat systemic racism and discrimination and to advance diversity and inclusion in our societies, including from an economic prosperity standpoint. In Canada, June marks National Indigenous History Month, an important opportunity to learn about, appreciate, and acknowledge the contributions that First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people have made in shaping our country. This year, National Indigenous History Month is taking place at a time of great sadness in our country, following the discovery of the remains of children near former residential schools. This month is dedicated to the missing children, the families left behind, and the survivors of residential schools. The mistreatment of Indigenous children at residential schools is a tragedy, the impacts of which are still felt today. Over decades, thousands of Indigenous children were taken from their families and communities. Prime Minister Trudeau has acknowledged that these findings are part of a larger tragedy and a shameful reminder of the systemic racism, discrimination, and injustice that Indigenous peoples have faced and continue to face in Canada. He is asking us as a country to acknowledge this truth, learn from our past, and walk the shared path of reconciliation so we can build a better future. While each of our countries has different histories and difficult truths to face, we also have a unique opportunity to walk the path together as we so often do as neighbors. Learning from each other, sharing best practices and the promotion of diversity and inclusion will help us move in the right direction. We will also ensure a more equitable and sustainable economic recovery. Which brings me back to the broader issue of economic recovery within the theme of this webinar. It's fair to say our countries and our leaders also have a very similar vision for economic recovery. 
It is one focused on good paying and secure jobs and ensuring that the benefits of economic growth are more accessible and shared more widely. Similar to what is happening here in the United States, in Canada, the COVID-19 recession has been the steepest and fastest economic contraction since the Great Depression. It has disproportionately affected low-wage workers, young people, women, and racialized Canadians. For businesses, it has been a two-speed recession with some finding ways to prosper and grow, but many businesses, especially small businesses, fighting to survive. The pandemic has also caused real hardship for the small business community. In Canada, our most recent budget articulates an approach and a series of concrete actions to ensure a sustainable economic recovery. Both our governments have made it clear that the path to economic recovery is entirely dependent on the trajectory of the virus. Given that, first and foremost, Budget 2021 is focused on finishing the fight against COVID-19. Canada's top priority remains protecting Canadians' health and safety. I am happy to report that the vaccine rollout is well underway across Canada with federal government support in every province and territory and Canadians enthusiastically rolling up their sleeves to do their part. And yes, that pun was very much intended. Budget 2021 is also about healing the wounds left by the COVID-19 recession. It's about creating more jobs and prosperity for Canadians in the days and decades to come. It makes historic investments to address the specific wounds of the COVID-19 recession, put people first, create jobs, grow the middle class, set businesses on a track for long-term growth, and ensure that Canada's future will be healthier, more equitable, greener, and more prosperous. The hallmark of Canada's budget is a transformative investment to build a Canada-wide early learning and childcare system, an initiative that is very much part of building back better and a shared roadmap commitment. This is a plan to drive economic growth, increase women's participation in the workforce, and offer each child in Canada the best start in life. Our budget is also a plan for a green recovery that fights climate change. It helps more than 200,000 Canadians make their homes greener, builds a net zero economy by investing in world leading technologies to make industry cleaner and reduce pollution, helps Canada reach its goal of conserving 25% of our lands and oceans by 2025, and creates good middle-class jobs in the green economy along the way. Canada's plan to spur job creation and support small business will create almost 500,000 new training and work opportunities, including 215,000 opportunities for youth. It will support businesses in our most affected sectors, such as tourism and arts and culture, and accelerate investment in digital transformation of small and medium-sized businesses. The government has committed to creating 1 million jobs by the end of this year. 
When it comes to our trade relationship and economic recovery, we will continue to work with the United States to identify and take advantage of emerging opportunities. We also know we have to be realistic and we have to be strategic. If the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that while we might need to become a bit more self-reliant in some areas, in this interconnected world, nobody can truly go it alone. We need to resist the inclination to look inward at the expense of important trade and security relationships. And certainly, Canada is committed to working with our partners and allies on the post-COVID recovery. Thanks to the relationships we have built over the past 25 years under NAFTA, and now under the USMCA, we can tackle these issues with a bilateral or North American approach, leveraging our respective strengths and robust cross-border supply chains in support of this recovery. Canada and the United States have obvious strengths as reliable partners. We have similar economic structures, comparable environmental policies, a shared vision for greening government and greening infrastructure, a shared industrial base, and a shared commitment to diversity, equity, and justice. Regarding the president's Building Back Better agenda and with respect to infrastructure, which we know is a priority for this administration, we recognize the U.S. interest in supporting American workers and jobs. On that, we would simply point out that with respect to integrated cross-border Canada-US supply chains, imposing domestic content requirements can have the opposite effect. They can negatively affect American workers and jobs and the timelines and costs associated with important infrastructure projects. Let's not forget, we don't just sell things to each other, we build things together. Canadian building and construction materials are some of the greenest in the world. Using Canada-US supply chains to build infrastructure means lower emissions associated with both production and transportation. Our countries also have robust labor regimes. Many of our workers are represented by the same unions and their leaders are keen to find a pragmatic way forward that protects workers and supply chains on both sides of the border. As we move forward, similar to how we've worked together during previous economic downturns in the interest of both our countries, it's critical that we work together again in support of our economic recovery efforts. This will ensure that our economic recoveries deliver on the promises of stimulating our economies and getting our citizens, all our citizens, back to work. To conclude, it should be fairly clear by now that the Prime Minister and the President share a similar vision when it comes to building back better, one that is sustainable, inclusive, and helps strengthen the middle class. Despite global challenges in the face of uncertainty and instability, Canada's relationship with the United States endures. It is resilient, interdependent, and multifaceted. It is precisely because of this interdependence that decisions on one side of the border often impact those on the other side. We need to remain vigilant while seizing new opportunities. Whether in relation to economic recovery, supply chain security, fighting climate change, 
for the many other areas identified in the roadmap, there are many new opportunities for Canada and the United States to pursue in the years ahead. Our shared commitment to an economic recovery must include and be sensitive to the unique impacts on communities that are hurting the most. Opportunities that are more equitably distributed are a core feature of what better will look like as we rebuild. I'll end by noting that, as has been noted, July 1st is Canada Day. As we contemplate our reconciliation efforts and our relationship with Indigenous peoples, as the Prime Minister has said, this Canada Day will be a time of reflection on what we've achieved as a country, but also on what more we have to do. As friends and neighbors, reliable trading partners, and trusted allies, Canada and the United States have worked together over many years and accomplished much. We still have so much to do together and many opportunities to seize. It's a privilege for me to have been given this opportunity to share some of the highlights of this renewed partnership. Thank you very much for having me today and for including Canada as part of this webinar series. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine, for that uh, wonderful um, keynote address that gave us a really good perspective on the robust and multifaceted relationship that the United States and Canada have on um, not just economics and trade, but also on the environment, on national security issues, on human rights, um, climate change. And I was pleased to hear you speak about our work in nature-based solutions and the roadmap um, uh, that uh, President Biden and um, Prime Minister Trudeau um, uh, agreed upon in February. Thank you so much for your remarks. Who is the Canadian American Business Council? The CABC is the leading advocate for Canadian-American cross-border relations. While we share quite a long border, 5,500 miles of it, our relationship goes beyond physical landmarks. It is woven into the very fabric of our history and more importantly, our shared future. The cornerstone of that future? Our integrated economy the envy of nations around the world. $2 billion traded every day, employing millions between our two countries in industries such as manufacturing, agriculture, and energy. Canada, the leading supplier of all forms of energy to the U.S. Hydroelectricity, natural gas, and oil, to name a few. And it goes both ways. Our bilateral energy trade reached $110 billion in 2019. But our energy partnership extends beyond trade with a joint commitment to sustainability and ongoing efforts for a clean energy future, prioritizing the shared stewardship of our bountiful natural resources. Beyond energy, we also share one of the world's largest investment relationships at close to $900 billion. And in agriculture, Canada is the largest market for the United States, accounting for over 15% of AG exports. 
This mutually beneficial relationship, seen in the ongoing construction of the Gordie Howe International Bridge, connecting the world's most prosperous trade corridor of Detroit, Michigan, and Windsor, Ontario. 2020 certainly upended many aspects of the flow of people, goods, and commerce. Pre-pandemic, nearly 400,000 people crossing our common border each day. However, with a ban on non-essential travel in place, that stream reduced to a trickle. But the CABC is leading the way for a return to normalcy, setting the table for innovative conversations between business leaders and policymakers, working to reopen the border safely to re-energize our tourism industries, finding solutions during the economic downturn, and to position us for greater success in the future for our shared prosperity. Because as the guardian of the U.S.-Canada relationship, we at the CABC know that we can tackle all of the world's greatest health, economic, and political challenges better together. Alrighty, well, you've asked me to speak here today about how the American-Canadian relationship is working nowadays. Uh, beyond the video. You've even given me a title, so let me make sure I have this right. Partners, the United States and Canada. Well, how to put this. Since we are being hosted by institutions of higher learning, let me borrow from Irving Goffman. We need to analyze the frame of that title because it contains an assumption that has become a cultural, culturally determined definition of our reality. And I'm here to tell you that our reality has changed. Canada and the United States may indeed be partners, of course we are. Our proximity imposes it. But a partnership can be anything from the keen ardor of an all-in, fully engaged collaboration to something more rote. I believe we are drifting towards rote. Let me say it another day. I have another way, or another day. I have devoted a significant piece of my career, as Zabe told you, to advancing the proposition that Canada and the United States are exemplars of the term, quote, special relationship, that we are stout and tireless allies, fellow tribes, culturally aligned collaborators that have one another's backs. The foundational principle of the organization I lead, you just saw it in the video, is that Canada and the United States stand together on common ground and have a relationship that the world envies. It's my business to study, reflect upon that relationship, and advocate for it. Uh, as Zabe said, I at one point was a US diplomat in Canada. I have had the pleasure of watching our economies integrate over decades to the point that in some ways they are a single system. I consider myself, I hope I can say this, to be among the champions of that relationship, not unlike the distinguished speakers we have heard from all day today so far. Certainly I believe and I preach that when whatever our two countries do, we're better together. All of which is to say that if I, among all people, am questioning the very notion that Canada and the United States are still fully engaged, enthusiastic partners, then something has changed. It is not something we are naturally inclined to say, and it's not something that I have said publicly before, yet I'm saying it, and I'll tell you why. I think we have to stop taking refuge in out-of-date references. We need to re-examine old narratives and come up with new ones that are suited to today's reality. Let's start with one of the oldest and often repeated and greatest accepted truths of all, that Canada and the United States are the best friends and the closest allies. 
Canadians, after all, can disappear into a crowd of Americans, at least if they avoid saying out and about in public. In each other's countries, Canadians and Americans are probably the world's most relaxed tourists. We have a common language, common cultural references, our military and political business leaders are utterly comfortable with each other. Canadian soldiers fought alongside American troops in both world wars and nearly every conflict since. We have a common aerospace defense organization, NORAD. We haven't attacked one another in, militarily in more than two centuries. We share secrets and technologies and supply chains. We are in each other's daily news cycle and weather maps, but look closer. And the lackluster wrote of some of the joint declarations, uh, look at what they become, look when they become more obvious, sorry, closer look when they become more obvious. To an awful lot of Canadians and Americans on the left and on the right, the success of our integrated economies now smacks of globalization. What was once prized is now rejected by large swaths of the population. For the past four years, the U.S. had an isolationist president who denounced what he called globalism. When he threatened to tear up NAFTA, the trade agreement that binds our economies, the most successful economic partnership in the history of the world, millions of Americans cheered. They cheered again when Trump declared that Canadian steel and aluminum were threats to American national security and placed tariffs on them. For that and for all sorts of other reasons, I expect you can imagine, President Trump was just about universally loathed in Canada. The fact that a majority of Americans voted against him in 2016 and the math of the Electoral College didn't matter, he was the American president and he represented America and he magnified the ugly aspects of the American polity that our chattering classes, perhaps including me, have strived for decades to portray as marginal. As everyone now understands, they are not marginal. In any case, those years merely confirmed what a lot of Canadians believed about America. They began earnestly looking elsewhere in the world for commonality. They talked about finding other allies. The Canadian government sought out other trade agreements. Who could blame them? As Americans said goodbye to Barack Obama and inaugurated Donald Trump, Canadians elected and then re-elected Justin Trudeau, a leader who believes in gender and racial diversity in his own cabinet, describes himself as a feminist, preaches reconciliation with Indigenous and First Nations, something particularly important as we think about what we're learning in recent weeks. Now add to that the pandemic, which of necessity imposed a separation of American and Canadian populaces that hasn't been seen since, well, since ever. Suddenly, to use a favorite Canadian phrase, we were two solitudes. Essential business continued, but the border gates swung shut and were padlocked, which is how they remain to this day, as I speak. Most Americans, meaning populations not near the northern border or dependent on tourism, didn't necessarily notice at first, but Canadians did, and polling consistently suggests that they approve of continued separation. Think about that. A majority of Canadians now prefer to keep Americans out and not just because of the pandemic. The truth is the past four years seem to give Canadians permission to speak aloud what many of them used to only say in private. They don't really like their neighbors to the South all that much. Or as Prime Minister Chrétien used to joke about Americans, you're our best friend. And then he added, whether we like it or not, Anyone who doesn't think that sentiment hasn't affected Canadian policy doesn't really, I would submit, know Canada. 
Canadians will almost certainly be deeply skeptical about America's next foreign war. They will view economic cooperation as a necessity, but will reward politicians who promise to keep America at arm's length. Closest allies and best friends? It's a lovely idea, but it is no longer quite as rock solid as we would like to think, as I would like to think. So let me dwell a few more moments here on the era of the past few years. Another great received truth about the Canada-US relationship is that it ebbs and flows in direct proportion to the personal relationship between the president and the prime minister. Remember Brian Mulroney and Ronald Reagan? They were close. And the relationship prospered under their stewardship. They sang When Irish Eyes Are Smiling Together on stage at the so-called Shamrock Summit of 1985, and they negotiated the first Canada-US free trade agreement, which Reagan fast-tracked. They truly were friends. Mulroney was one of the very few invited to deliver a eulogy at Reagan's state funeral and Mrs. Reagan's, I believe, an honor craved by every Republican here in DC. And I recall touring the private residence at the Reagan Library with former Ambassador Gary Dewar, and there were pictures of the Reagans and the Mulroneys together all through that private residence. It was really poignant. During their years, their years in power, everyone talked about how much better the relationship was than it had been under, say, Richard Nixon, who famously called Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre, that expletive deleted, or JFK, who also was, you know, was a sailor and talked like a sailor, uh, famously uh, called John Diefenbaker an expletive deleted. But let's look dispassionately at the relationship since the day, since those days. Trump didn't really love Prime Minister Trudeau. He insulted him publicly. And yet under Trump, the U.S. signed and ratified the updated version of the NAFTA, the USMCA, which we've been talking about today. Prime Minister Stephen Harper, President Barack Obama were, let's say, aloof. Yet their administrations greatly furthered regulatory cooperation. They signed the Beyond the Border, a landmark joint security perimeter. Obama did have that short-term bromance, remember that, with Prime Minister Trudeau? But that didn't secure the Keystone XL pipeline extension for Canada. And in fact, President Joe Biden, another Trudeau admirer, just killed it on the first day of office. On the evidence, personal relationships between the leaders are just that. Relevant in the old days, perhaps, but ultimately, and nowadays, countries act in their own economic and political self-interest. To, to crib Charles de Gaulle, Nations don't have friends, they have interests. While I'm at it, let me debunk another axiomatic truth. Our famously open, famously unguarded, famously long shared border, a 5,500 mile long, cooperatively managed open door, there's nothing like it anywhere. That was true once. That was true when we made that video that I just showed. But here and now, I'd characterize it more as a stubborn legend. As I mentioned earlier, the land border remains closed to all but essential traffic. Air traffic, different story. The fact is Canadians have been free from day one during the pandemic to fly into the US destination for any reason or no reason at all. They were, they were and remain exempted from White House directives denying entry to much of the world's population. Canadians have been able to vacation here, visit family in the US and continue traveling to properties they own. Many of them were fully vaccinated in the U.S. free of charge while Canada was still waiting for vaccines. American air travelers, meanwhile, have been barred from landing in Canada since March of last year. Recently, Ottawa decided to relax its quarantine rules for fully vaccinated travelers, but only those with a Canadian passport or permanent residency. 
Let me put this even more bluntly. Fully vaccinated Canadians are free to visit the U.S. and may now return home unhindered. Fully vaccinated Americans are unwelcome in Canada. What does that tell you? It tells me that Canadian voters like it that way. We are in fact seeing, what we are in fact seeing is a breakdown of the cooperation, the cooperative border management that has defined our relationship for decades. And patience is wearing thin in Washington. If Canada decides next month to extend the land border closure once again, there's a good chance that the White House will just open America's side unilaterally. This of course will make the inequity all the more glaring. Americans don't like to be treated unfairly, and it's increasingly clear that that's what's happening. You know, we were told for decades, and I believed it for a long time, that Canadians treasure the bilateral relationship while at the same time, the U.S. takes Canada for granted. I would suggest, respectfully, that the reverse is now true. I've already covered contemporary Canadian attitudes towards Americans, and maybe that's rich coming from me since I'm an American. Let's look at the adverse side of the coin. My organization was fairly involved behind the scenes on the NAFTA renegotiation. Let me tell you why congressional Democrats voted overwhelmingly in favor of what was, after all, a Trump economic package, even as they prepared to impeach him. It wasn't simply because of Canada's famous charm offensive, which absolutely happened. It was also because businesses were horrified at the idea of tearing up NAFTA and retreating behind a tariff wall. We made it clear to Congress that costing jobs and prosperity are unacceptable, and both sides of the political aisle listened. No, Americans no longer take the special relationship such as it is for granted. I would submit that lately, perhaps Canadians do. Maybe none of the Canadians on this call today, uh, but in general. Some pretty important people in Washington, Chuck Schumer, Amy Klobuchar, Patty Murray, Brian Higgins, Elise Stefanik are noticing. But look, I understand it is not useful for me to identify challenges without suggesting solutions. So let me propose a few. Some of them have already actually been discussed today. So I'm gonna highlight, underscore, and put an exclamation point behind them. We need to help each other and meaningfully. Instead of complaining about the inevitable by American clauses and American spending packages, and I don't mean to minimize concerns about that, Canada could help its own case by throwing in with the United States on something big and meaningful. I'm talking about the Innovation and Competition Act, formerly known as Endless Frontiers. It's a huge bipartisan effort to compete with Chinese statism. It sinks more than $100 billion into artificial intelligence, semiconductors, quantum computing, biotechnology, advanced communications. China has denounced it as an example of Cold War prejudice which in itself should tell you something. It's encouraging to see Canada already working closely with the United States to counter China's effective mo monopoly on rare and critical minerals. I give Canada's former ambassador, my good friend David McNaughton, a lot of credit for getting this cooperation going. I would add, and Canada is continuing doubling down on that. I would add though that a lot more needs to be done and done more quickly. Electric vehicles will displace the internal combustion fleet, and those vehicles will need batteries, and those batteries will require critical minerals. You know, I don't need to tell you, Canada that hasn't been bruised by China's leadership, joining with the U.S. to counter China would send a good message, and it would amplify our alliance. It would certainly replenish some of the goodwill that has dissipated in the last several years. 
Or Canada could even more formally lock arms with Washington on energy policy, as Eric Miller articulated just a few moments ago. Canada already feeds the U.S. grid with renewable green hydroelectric power and expertise on carbon capture. Imagine the potential for real change if they were combined with America's market power, capital, and ingenuity. Talk about inspiring the world. The MOU that Minister O'Regan and Secretary Granholm signed last week is a step in the right direction. Let's try to ensure that those words become meaningful action. And let's hope that the spirit of cooperation that's represented in that MOU is also replicated in how the U.S. and Canada resolve existing challenges about the Michigan dispute with Enbridge on its pipeline that moves underneath the Straits of Mackinac. We also need to entrench the things that we have long taken for granted. Really, let us stop arguing endlessly about softwood lumber and craft a permanent political agreement. And it should be obvious that our shared real estate makes a coordinated environmental policy essential. NORAD should be expanded to counter new threats. Those Russian hackers who clogged up the East Coast fuel supply bring the combined full force of our military and cyber experts to bear. I could go on, and I will if we have time during the question period, but my salient point is this. Let's not keep up old pretenses. Let's be mercilessly practical. Let's do what is in our shared best interest. We have nurtured and promoted tropes about ourselves that sound old and hackneyed to anyone who studies the relationship. We need a new, less sentimental analogy. We are not different branches of the same family tree or bickering siblings. We might not even be terrible, spe terribly special to one another. Or maybe we're closer than I thought. Ian Sanders today didn't talk about Canada and the United States as best friends, but he did say that Canada is strategic and important. Maybe we are being more realistic. If you think about it, President Kennedy's assertions to the Canadian Parliament 50 years ago remain objective truth. Economics has made us partners. Necessity has made us allies. We really don't need a group hug. We really need to take a clear-eyed view of what has worked, decide what's in our common interest, and pursue it. Earlier I said that my organization's mantra is that whatever we do, we do better together. So everything I've said, notwithstanding, that is quite simply true. So let me ask you this, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we do it together? So thank you so much for the invitation, Richard and Zabe, and I look forward to the dialogue. Thank you, Scotty. I want to start by um, asking you, Scotty, about the um, Canadian American Business Council. You've got some very influential members um, that have a lot of clout in both countries. Um, you talked about um, the need to um, rethink um, the way we look at the, at the Canadian American relationship. Uh, what role can the Canadian American Business Council play? in beginning to shape that new um, dialogue and to change the paradigm? Well, thanks, Richard. I think one of the things that civil society can do, that private sector corporations can do, that, that everybody can do, is um, speak clearly about how, how good it is that we cooperate together. And so what, what our members can do and what we do do, hopefully, is by engaging in that dialogue and by speaking clearly, um, we provide some political cover, I hope, um, that allows governments to kind of do the right thing. Um, you know, everybody, there's an old saying in Washington, I can't remember which president it was, but he was meeting with a group of lobbyists and he said, okay, 
you've convinced me. Now go out there and make me do it. <laughs> so there's something that the business community, again, civil society can do by not just agreeing behind closed doors, but also getting out there in the public domain in places like today and speaking fearlessly and, and not just waiting for governments to tell us what we need to think, but you know, provi providing with a little leadership ourselves. One topic that's been sort of, we've tiptoed around um, today in the discussions, but really hasn't been dealt with directly is the um, interrelationship of communities uh, along the U.S.-Canadian border. And I think it's close to 90% of Canada's population is within 100 miles of the U.S. border, mostly for climate reasons more than anything else. But obviously, in a COVID context, this has had a, a huge impact on both sides of the border with um, communities on the U.S. side of the border that have been hurt um, because of the lack of tourism and, and commerce. Similarly, Canada has, has faced those, those same impacts. From your perspective um, and from your organization's um, policy work, um, what do you see as the path forward? Um, obviously, I know the Biden administration has stepped up its efforts for vaccine um, um, relief with Canada. Canada beginning is starting to ramp up its vaccines, but we're still, we still have closed borders and tourism has really been uh, stymied. Um, so love to get your perspectives on this, on this issue. Sure, well, I mean, vaccine deployment uh, and utilization is, is one, two, and three, right? It, you know, everybody needs to get vaccinated and both countries are working off their heart to get there. Uh, and, and so that's the first thing, you've got to get your own population protected. Um, and then quickly thereafter, uh, and I talked about this a little bit in my remarks, there, there are Northern border politicians in the US that are saying, if, a fully, if, if an American is fully vaccinated, why wouldn't they be allowed to go to Canada? Um, and they're also saying, importantly, you know, in these border communities, they, we have summer people, we call them summer people, like in Northern Vermont, Lake Montemagog. It's a lake that is 30 miles long, 20 miles of the lake are in the Eastern townships of Quebec, 10 miles of the lake are in Vermont. Canadians own property on this side and they haven't been down to their property for two years. And so now they'll, you know, if the U.S. border will open um, or they will be allowed to come, right? If Canada and the United States decide after July 21st to reciprocally open the border, Canadians will be able to come across to their places and Americans will be able to go to their places. Congressman John LaFalse was the uh, original co-founder of the Northern Border Caucus. And when he retired, he's from Buffalo, New York. And when he retired, his wife said, you know, I've always wanted a house at Crystal Beach, which happens to be in Fort Erie, Ontario. They, I mean, he has blown up my phone. When do I get to go to my house? I promise I'll stay there. Am I allowed to travel? So I think uh, it will be really important um, to get people going back and forth again, um, to get that inner connectivity going again. Um, Richard, I'll just close with this. Uh, Chris Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center, Canada Institute, and I have been uh, reporting episodes of a podcast that we're going to launch um, shortly in the next few days, and it's called Canusa Street. And Canusa Street, C-A-N-U-S-A, the name of it came from uh, a friend of ours in northern Vermont who lives right on the border, and there's a street called Church Street, but because half of it's in Canada and half of it is in uh, Stanford, Quebec, and half of it's in Vermont, all the locals call it Canusa Street because everybody knows. So anyway, we've got a podcast uh, called Canusa Street, and we'll be we'll be talking about these things. But the the 
you know, the short form is uh, we need to treat each other in the same way, which is if you're fully vaccinated, you're safe. We need to get our populations vaccinated. In Vermont, I think it's over 80%. So it would be safe even if somebody, was, you know, there's a risk, a lower risk of somebody unvaccinated entering your country. Um, if, if, you're, if your population is vaccinated, you'd be okay. The other thing where the U.S. is hesitating and they, sh I think, should not hesitate is to figure out um, a certification uh, to, to demonstrate that Americans are good to travel. Even if President Biden doesn't want to require a vaccine passport to allow people to come into the U.S., Americans want to travel and governments, Canada and many other governments in the world are going to say, okay, you got to prove to us uh, that, that you're safe. And uh, I think the U.S. government is going to have to collaborate more than it seems to be willing to do so far. So far, the answer is we'll get ICAO to issue the standard or we'll rely on the private sector. So I think I think the, there's work on both sides that needs to be done, but the U.S. is going to have to do it a little bit. I have one final question before we, we close our session. Uh, Catherine Bard, in her comments, spoke about the roadmap that um, President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau um, signed and committed to back in February. It's a comprehensive roadmap, as, as Catherine mentioned, that covers not only our strategic security interests, but also trade and commerce and cooperation on climate, climate change, climate action. Um, what role it, does the um, Canadian American Business Council have in the context of the implementation um, of that roadmap and supporting both the Canadian government and the American government to realize the potential of that partnership? Well, one of the things we do um, is is constantly um, hold people accountable to it, to the commitments. Because you know, Washington D.C. might be the capital of attention deficit disorder. You know, we focus on one thing today, something else the next day, and we, we've got a lot of other issues. So, one of the things that private sector communities, the American Business Council, and others do is say, "Don't forget about the roadmap. It's really important. We've got a milestone coming up. We need to think about it." And then also provide feedback to the agencies on how to make it operational and how to um, really advance the goals in a practical way. So th those are the things that, that we do um, on, on the various different aspects of that roadmap. But as I said, I think that roadmap is really important and meaningful, but I also think that this, uh, this you know, what's known colloquially as the anti-China bill is a giant opportunity for Canada and for Canadian businesses to jump in and be part of that with the United States to develop domestic industry uh, or North American domestic industry to counter China, whether it's semiconductors, AI, um, or any of those other big categories. Well, uh, thank you so much for those closing uh, remarks. Um, I want to thank all of the participants for joining us today. I also want to thank, um, again, our, our uh, funding partner, the Burnham Foundation, that made this uh, forum possible as well as our program partners, the UCLA Canadian Studies Program, the Maple Business Council of Southern California, the California Chamber of Commerce, and NASCO. So thank you so much for your participation, and we look forward to seeing you at uh, future um, Institute programs. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.